0: You are listening to Friends of Europe's podcast. Don't miss our debates on global and European issues that span political, economic, social and environmental challenges. And follow our website at friendsofEurope.org. So once again, good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to this discussion on how the digital revolution can be used faster and better for development. Um, welcome from uh, Friends of Europe. Uh, You know, we have our development policy forum that we run in cooperation with some of the world's leading development agencies. And we talk about a number of things. We talk about fragile states, urbanization, climate change. We talk about the empowerment of women, uh, how to make boys and girls uh, educate faster. And as we do so, as we've been doing so, it's clear that digitalization is changing the way we approach this. The traditional view of how you get development done is changing. It's being turned upside down by by the digital revolution. And uh, if you look at the Agenda 2030 and the Sustainable Development Goals, it's very clear that the use of digital technology is going to make implementation of this Agenda 2030 easier, faster. At least that's the hope. But as we embark, and you know, things will get better as technologies evolve and change and are introduced. But as we move on, it's also clear that there are many, many challenges. And I think two key challenges stand out when we look at it. First of all, it's the digital exclusion. So many, many people across the world, in their millions, if not their billions, are still not getting the kind of access to digital technology that they need to be part of this transformation that's taking place. And one of the other statistics that stands out and is very worrying is that there is an extreme inequality in terms of gender access to technology. And women in many parts of the world still don't have that very important access empowering access to digital technology. So those are the two kind of challenges uh, that stand out when we talk about this very upbeat uh, new landscape that's opening up in front of us. Um, So that's why we're going to, uh, that's why we decided to hold this uh, discussion today. We have a lot of expertise in this room and I want you all to be involved. I'm Shada Islam from Friends of Europe. And on this panel, uh, just to kick off our discussion, we brought together three very, very uh, uh, very well-informed and knowledgeable people about this discussion, about this subject. So on my left is Yuri Selenthal. He's Director General for Foreign and Economic Policy and Development Cooperation at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in Estonia. Welcome, Yuri. As you all know, the Estonian presidency has put the digital uh, economy, the digital revolution, very high up on the EU agenda. It's not always high up on the EU agenda. Other issues tend to creep in. Uh, But still, you're there, you're persisting, and we're going to listen and hear from you about how this is happening in the real world. Uh, We're very, very happy also to have with us G. Subramanian. Subi, as I'm going to call him. Uh, he is Principal Innovation Evangelist at Tata Consultancy Services, TCS, which is a very, very important partner for Friends of Europe. And uh, TCS, as you may know, has been cited by Fortune magazine as one of the top, 20, 50, sorry, top 50 companies that are changing the world. Subi is leading efforts to bring this technology to Tata uh, TCS customers, and he's involved in many, many of the initiatives taking place in India, but elsewhere as well. Also very happy to have with us Dana She uh, She's digital inclusion expert at the ACP Young Professionals Network. Dana is a researcher at the Catholic University of Louvain working on digital inclusion. I'm uh, very sorry that Agnès Maître from IFD, also one of our very important partners, fell ill very suddenly at the last minute and is not going to be here. But as I said, there's a lot of expertise in the room from partners, and I do want this to be quite an interactive discussion. So I'm going to kick off with you, Yuri. Uh, uh, The rules of the game are that you have five minutes to uh, set your stall, as it were. And my question to you really is, I mean, Estonia has done quite an interesting thing, putting the digital economy very high up on the EU agenda and also presumably in the development field. So tell tell me, how satisfied are you? What are your projects? What are your plans? how, How is it going along? Yes. Yes, it's on.
1: It's working. Okay. Good afternoon from my side, and uh, thanks for, for inviting. Well, uh, you are right that we have uh, have made digitalization one of the um, central items of our, if I can say so, anticipated presidency, because as you remember, we su- were supposed to hold the presidency next spring, which would have coincided with our centenary, and we were looking very keenly at the EU agenda and... and uh, trying to figure out how to be a really good presidency, but then something, a revolutionary event, happened last summer, a certain referendum in a certain country, which by the end of August meant that we had to anticipate our presidency, and of course our our thinking was that if we don't want this to turn into solely a Brexit presidency, there has to be something which is ours. And when we were looking what might be the unique thing uh, for us, uh, uh, it's our understanding, it would be digitalization and specifically the citizen or resident state relationship. And and that's uh, definitely something that we thought uh, there is things that could be better in the EU. Um, Well, there is no uh, digital single market in Europe yet. And also, uh, as a spin-off of that or uh, as a collateral of that, also um, the same things in the field that I'm responsible for, which is development and humanitarian during our presidency. Uh, So our goal has been to convince EU and its member states that there is actually a huge benefit in mainstreaming digital thinking across different policy sectors. To come back to what you said that Europe hasn't been doing, I think there's a very good explanation. European things have been going rather well for rather a long time. So I think the logic has been why change when mm-hmm. things are working rather well anyway. Mm-hmm. But, of course, there's the danger that, that sometimes uh, life around can, uh, even in places which maybe are not doing so well, can, can surpass you. If, if you, uh, some people go on cycling and others put the battery on their bikes and then you notice that they are passing you. Uh, We think we know what we are talking about when we are trying to convince others. Uh, In Estonia, everybody can do quite a lot via digital tools from DAX declarations, in a good case in less than 10 minutes, to participating in elections online. Uh, What I also want to say here is that uh, when I think about development, I I never uh, believe uh, as a rule in in leapfrogging and in, in, uh, let's say, revolutionary changes. So we have been moving towards um, digital uh, governance uh, since the beginning of 2000, so it's actually a rather long period. And uh, by now it's quite, uh, quite hard to imagine how we did things before we went digital. But having said that, actually we still have always the paper option available for those who who for some reason don't want to use the digital option. But uh, the principle is that by default every public service should be digital. And I would claim that Estonia has uh, benefited, uh, Estonia's development has benefited quite a lot from the digital mindset. And I just thought up some some key issues maybe which would be of interest to discuss here Mm -hmm. or or give uh, give food for thought, which I think faced the development community vis-à-vis the whole issue that we call digital. Uh, Digital is recognized as a goal in itself, uh, but as well a tool to reach sustainable development goals that are set in the Agenda 2030 framework. Uh, Indeed, we believe that different SDGs could benefit from a digital component. I'll bring an example. Um, We could make progress in providing universal healthcare, which is SDG3, to more people and also in remote areas by using e-health solutions. And a practical example, uh, Moldova is one of our bilateral development cooperation priority partners, and we are helping them to build up an e-health system in Moldova that allows patients in remote areas to consult relevant specialist doctors before taking up a long journey to a hospital. And it's uh, useful both for the person and, of course, also for the medical system and uh, that uh, people uh, don't try to self-diagnose and then show up and take up hospital time when maybe there is, is another solution. Uh, well, digital solutions do also help to collect more resources for sustainable development by contributing to more efficient domestic resource mobilizations through simple and transparent electronic tax systems. An Estonian company uh, helped Nigerians build up a system through a World Bank project uh, and where they started from the state accountancy was in basically in, in uh, A4 um, notebooks. And now they have an electronic system and they have actually discovered that uh, they have a much better control instead of having 2,000 separate accounts, having a single account system in the country. Uh, One of the huge benefits that we usually don't notice of digital solutions is that they don't discriminate users. Uh, I mean that from the technological side point of view, I recognize that there might be a gender gap. I'll come back to that. But your computer or your smartphone actually doesn't care about either your age, your gender, your nationality or your disability. So in this sense uh, we believe that digitalisation can be a powerful tool to empower vulnerable groups economically, politically and also socially. And uh, also we think it can contribute to more accountable participatory and inclusive societies and uh, this should help us take a step closer to SDG 16 which is Peace, Justice and Strong Institutions. We believe that a good starting point where it all should start from is a secure digital identity. Again, uh, uh, Target 16.9, and that states by 2030, uh, one should provide legal identity for all, including birth registration. And this actually uh, could be a basis to numerous e-governance services. An electronic civil registry, which is based on a secure identity, could facilitate the compilation of electoral lists, Uh, And also, for example, help to determine the number of people in need of certain basic services at a certain area. Paired with an uh, electronic signature, it could be also used in legal procedures. And this could, in the longer term, facilitate trade. And uh, one could theoretically also envisage uh, regular migration in the future. We know one of the huge problems is that we don't know what the migration flow actually consists of. And the resources spent on identifying a huge I am coming to. I understand you are looking at your clock. You no, I had. I had,
0: I had. No, I am not looking at my clock. But please do. I, yes. I needed a follow-up. Mm-hmm. But
1: please go ahead. Uh, but also, of course, these measures have to be matched with investments, both in cybersecurity and also uh, sufficient amount of protection of data, so that people would feel comfortable about their country having data about them. Well, for the services, you need to have connections, uh, and of course, one of the um, development dilemmas is how to connect the unconnected and it's a fact that uh, connectivity is unevenly spread, but I would claim this is not a crucial, crucial issue. Um, m- many of you probably have read the World Bank development report of, of last year, and the data there is becoming a bit old, but it, of course, shows that, uh, that much more connection is available than people use it. And the same problem, of course, applies to our own countries. So I think the challenge is to improve the connectivity and the services at the same time Uh, We shouldn't look at connectivity as a prerequisite and then start building the services. I think every uh, Mm -hmm. final consumer makes a rational calculation. Is it worth paying for the connection? And the more services there are, the better the calculation becomes. Another thing that we have to keep in mind is that everything is the beta version all the time. Uh, Services go uh, online before they are 100% ready. Um, You know, if this would be a car, it would be a disaster. Nobody would accept a car which would have to be taken in every two weeks to be updated but in IT systems, that's, that's the reality. Uh, um, so we have to provide a space which is actually conducive to learning from the mistakes to achieve, achieve better results. Right. Uh, another advantage is that uh, when you are active online, you actually leave traces of every activity uh, that you do. And this is a powerful anti-corruption tool. But like I said, it works if it's coupled with uh, balancing privacy measures, which people have also to understand that are implemented. Access to information, uh, we think, uh, enhances participation, and I believe this uh, creates conditions for uh, meaningful participation if you actually know what, what, what are the issues. And participation in itself can be philosophically claimed is actually a basis for the legitimacy of, of government, so this is certainly a very, very good side effect. And, of course, everybody always asks, uh, where is the economic efficiency? And uh, that, of course, we can deduct from the time saved. If if we uh, imagine how much any of the operations we do online nowadays would have taken uh, or would take uh, when done the old way, we can basically very easily add up the minutes or hours that that we're saving. And I think it's a huge, huge boon. Well, to conclude, I think the interesting thing about digitalization is that it's taking place all over the world as as we are are here. And it's not uh, exclusive to developed countries. And so it offers an opportunity for a new kind of partnerships that could be mutually beneficial. I don't know if we'll come to the Indian example of Aadhaar, but uh, one of the arguments is your solutions are rich country solutions. Uh, And you are a small country, that's why you can do it. But of course, small country means less resources as well, so that argument doesn't count. And and India has proven that the size is not a hindrance either, if you have an idea what you want to do. So my point is that cooperation in the field of digitalization is not a one-way street. There is a good possibility that there are some solutions that we are struggling with here in Europe that have been developed in the world somewhere else already. And we should use this opportunity to learn from the (coughs) best practices of each other and we have to be uh, cognizant also and recognize that new technologies are being used in developing and developed countries and they offer new possibilities to tackle issues related to sustainable sustainable development which has to be our common effort so we think also that the eu development cooperation policy should increasingly use the tools of digitalization so that uh, to avoid the risk that we would be the ones who would be would be left behind but i would finish here. Maybe I was a bit too long. My apologies.
0: No, no, thank you very much. It's a very comprehensive uh, intervention giving us various uh, facets of what you're doing. But I do have a very quick follow-up for you, Yuri. So there is this vast uh, agenda. Estonia is sort of in the lead, spearheading certain novel and new ways of doing things. How how, um, accepting have the other EU states been? And your developing country partners, are they very open to this kind of discussion with you, or do they find that you're perhaps being a bit too crusading if i may put that word
1: well actually the, the good surprise has been that uh, Could you hold the yes uh, i'm sorry and uh, the good surprise has been that i think on on one-on-one level all of our european partners have been very receptive but it's not not the question about discussing the ideas it's actually changing what you're doing already right. and that's of course harder because uh, i am certainly one who believes that uh, that the eu development policy so far has brought results as well So the question is that if you want to innovate, you have to be, before using, able to prove that that the new solution is even better. And that's sometimes tricky. Mm -hmm. But if you ask about our bilateral partners, Estonian Development Corporation is almost 20 years old now. Mm -hmm. We used to be recipients ourselves in the 90s, and we started in the end of of 90s. But our priority countries are uh, a bit like us, Uh, three main partners, Ukraine, Moldova, Georgia, so with them, I think it's a bit easier. They are not LDCs. They have some, some level of it. But even in those countries, I will not mention the specific name. I ha- said here that you leave traces of everything. We discovered with one of our projects that there is a solution. If an official wants to be corrupt, they say there's no uh, currency. That's why you need to do it on paper. And by the way, so they, they unplug their own computers to claim that, uh, that they can't use the e-solution. And instead, so we have—I uh, mean, we, we never thought this kind of a solution would arrive. But it's—it's, it's, if you want to be corrupt, it's a genius solution. <laughs> but it's a very bad example. Well, but but in, in them, we have uh, have found this readiness. And and also, what is has been surprising to us, also in, in quite a lot of African countries, if you are able to convince the um, the the leaders that this is something that needs to be done, uh, I, I think uh, the Nigerian case is very good because they, co- they also discovered loads of. Um, ghost workers, they claim, people who work in, in many places at the same time, which of course means that they only withdraw salaries from many places. And I think for, for every government, this is a very good example. First you save money, then you get the, create a better environment, and, and when this problem disappears, actually in the long term, it will be a huge motivator for their honest citizens. Right. That, that right. they see that their own government is tackling tackling right. the problem.
0: Of course, corruption, of course, is very high up on the agenda uh, at the moment uh, across the world. And one of the uh, one of the assets of digital is being able to hold governments accountable, and uh, governments have to be more transparent. We'll come to that in a minute. But I did want to turn to you now, Subi, because we have, uh, as Yuri said, a small European country which is actually working very hard on digital. But India, a big, <laughs> a very big Asian country, has been there almost before, in a sense. And TCS, of course, has developed quite a few tools that are helping India, you know, to, to well, the term, leapfrog uh, into a new generation of technology, development uh, initiatives, etc. Give us a little bit of a, a taste of what you see as the main sort of thrusting issues that have come up.
2: Sure. Uh, thanks a lot. Uh, thanks for the invite, and thanks for being the panel. So you'll probably get a different perspective from what Yuri just talked about. Yuri is coming from a government government perspective, and uh, I'm from more from a private sector point of view. So my view of what the government services are being provided in India would also be probably tinted from a looking at it from a private private uh, enterprise kind of efficiency, etc. But having said that, I think uh, many of the things that uh, Yuri touched upon um, from an a uh, developing country like India, point of view, um, there's been um, uh, for the last 15 odd years there's been a lot of a uh, lot of changes. Um, I think it's more driven by an open economy, right? So that's that's point number one. Point number two, uh, there were a few technocrats who came into the government and they they opened up telecom and many of the uh, so-called public sector into private. Um, so that that has driven a lot of it. Uh, but the key thing, and I think uh, to a certain extent you really did touch upon it, is most of the innovations uh, in a developing country like India are from a frugal mentality, essentially looking at solutions that can be low cost, uh, done, done on the cheap, right? Uh, and definitely scalable because of uh, India's size, population, breadth, etc., right? So those are those are two or three differences between a developed country and a developing country, uh, uh, but I think uh, the core uh, are based on services that would be relevant to people. So you need a market for anything that you that you develop. A case in point would be the m krishi platform that was created uh, about 15 years back. Um, TCS TCS started off. Uh, trying to do something as an innovative project. There was definitely a roadmap for trying to make it a commercial enterprise. Can
0: you explain what it is, uh, Subhi?
2: Yeah, sure. yeah. yeah. So, M. essentially is a platform for farmers. Uh, it started off by you know, giving basic information to farmers on a mobile phone, but not a smartphone. So, the whole idea was to be able to provide text-based information. So it started off by you know, basic, providing basic weather information and real basic stuff. It has actually, over the period of time, with incremental uh, innovations, it's added things like you know, being able to, for the farmers to actually get some advice. So they can take a photograph, today they can take a photograph of a leaf and send it off to an expert who can tell them whether you know, which kind of uh, pesticide to be used. They can show their uh, field and you, know, you can get an idea of what's the yield that they can expect or what would be the date of, you know, when the when the farm can be sold, et cetera. So it's moved on to that space. Now, uh, when we started 15 years ago, it also included sensors based in the ground to look at, you know, uh, soil acidity and various fertilizers in the soil, et cetera. So now those technologies are really easily available given the internet of things and uh, the data data aspects which are come in. Uh, beyond, um, beyond going to farmers, the platform has also expanded to fishermen, so essentially you can, you know, it's, it's the same platform, but it gives information to fishermen when they're in the at so sea. It's always
0: still mobiles, not smartphones. It's, it's still Still, still, mobile still a
2: mobile, mobile interface, uh, and it gives uh, information to fishermen in case you know they get stuck in the middle of the sea, and in terms of weather, also the freshness of their produce. They can you know sell out, send out photos of those, so it's it's just an expanding ecosystem. Uh, one uh, critical point in M Krishi platform is, it's, though it started off as an innovation and you know, started frugally try to help farmers. Right, there was a roadmap for commercializing it, but given the marketplace that is India, and the farms are not large; they are really small farms. So there is no, you know, there is no revenue potential per se from individual farmers. So currently, it is a, uh, it's almost a CSR exercise that TCS undertakes. It didn't cost too much to build, so there is always a justification of, you know, uh, keeping it. And it's also now currently a platform on which uh, we invite students and, you know, looking at people who are uh, looking at STEM as a career path to build on top of the platform. So it's just providing us more and more services on top of it. But, yeah, so bottom line is uh, I think frugal aspect is key. Um, Innovations can come from any place, but, you know, it needs to be rooted, or solutions need to be, services need to be rooted to needs. It can't be something that you think is uh, very good and no uptake for it. Um, and last bit is connectivity. Um, I would kind of disagree with what you mentioned. You said that... Do you know, disagree.
0: Con- don't kind of disagree. <laughs> right.
2: uh, again, this is from an India context, right? Uh, I think the connectivity bit and services bit, you, uh, it's a valid point that you, know, you need, don't have to wait for connectivity to for services to start. Uh, but uh, in a large country like India, I think the connectivity is a huge issue. Mm-hmm. Access is a huge issue. Uh, it's not just the infrastructure. It's also the the education literacy level of people. Uh, so essentially, if, don't, if they're not literate, they don't demand for it. If they don't demand for it, there's no investment in that space. So, uh, so I think connectivity uh, uh, and all of the things that are happening in India, including Aadhaar, is all successful. Uh, because of the mobile revolution, right? So connectivity through mobile is what is, uh, mobile network is what is really uh, taken this up. So internet connectivity, the way that it is there in developed countries, uh, if that is available in some place like India, I think the number of services, innovations will really grow. So that's just a slight dichotomy there.
0: Right. Because, like, you know, you, you said at the start that uh, it's been driven uh, by an open economy uh, since India embarked on an open economy route. Uh, it's it said in India, you know, that the economy grows, India grows when the bureaucrats are sleeping. So I think that's, that's, that's a valid point. But what about uh, public-private partnerships in this area? I right. mean, isn't that the way forward in, in say, Africa or the parts of Asia, Latin uh, America?
2: Uh, yes, to a, to a certain extent. But then your first point, where you know, the government doesn't interfere, that's where a lot of uh, um, larger innovations happen uh, in spaces. But uh, the, in terms of publics, uh, private participation, I think there are pockets where you definitely need it. Uh, one is, of course, the other, the central registry kind of thing. This is and the
0: biometric it, identity cards.
2: Biometric identity card. More importantly, it's, uh, it's almost like a social security number. right? So it becomes your identity throughout your multiple services that you request for. So, so,
0: so how many Indians are, are subscribing to this now?
2: So I think we are about 80% of all really? Indians have been have gone into this. Now, there might be a small percentage who have got double, right. <laughs> duplicate, etc. But uh, I think it's it's been very successful because, uh, number one, um, the infrastructure really scaled out uh, to take care of it. And number two, all the services are getting attached to that. So once you make it mandatory that when you file your income tax you know, it won't be accepted till there is an Aadhaar number. Or if you apply for your passport, you need an Aadhaar card. Then you don't need any of your birth certificates. Everything is taken care of. And there was also a big drive by the government, right? There was about six, eight months of you know, constant people going to different buildings and, you know, dragging people out and getting <laughs> them an Aadhaar card. <laughs> so there was. So that, that, that also helped. And that is a good uh, case of a private-public uh, partnership uh, because the whole thing was led by somebody who came from a private sector and just just uh, ran that whole program like a private enterprise, though it was uh, government-sponsored. So uh, I think uh, government and the private, the, at least the public space, there's a lot of things that can be learned right. from, from...
0: And it, uh, is, is the Indian model inspiring uh, countries elsewhere in terms of doing something similar? Because this is the biggest challenge in the developing world, isn't it? The lack of... Actually, people knowing how many people there are and their their needs.
2: That's a good question. I am not aware of anybody actually piggybacking on that, as of as of today, because uh, it is a daunting exercise. It is, and it is not lift and shift. Right. So you can't take this program and you know, actually shift right. it out elsewhere because it's not only technology; it's social, and it's got components in other which are very very India cultural specific and right. stuff like that. Right. So I'm not very sure it can be lift and shifted, but uh, uh, SSN in the U.S. is a, is a you know, I, you have an SSN once and uh, that's forever, right, social security number. Yeah. Uh, you could come in, go out, uh, it really doesn't matter, right. it's, it's all tied in. So yeah, so there are success right. uh, passed for that. Yeah.
0: But Yuri, wouldn't that be something that would be actually quite a big uh, initiative that... Estonia or the EU could take to help countries because you can't have health statistics, educational statistics, anything unless you know just how many people are out there what uh, and what and they can have access to these assets and facilities. Isn't that something mm-hmm. the EU could be taking a lead on?
1: Yes. Well. Before answering that, I can tell you that last spring I asked the Indian Deputy Foreign Minister that we know about your hugely successful program, are your neighbors looking at it? And he said, no, we are not aware that they would be. But I think this points to the whole thing. The country itself has to want it. And in that sense, India is a good example. Mm-hmm. I think you also yourself financed it. Because per person, actually, the costs are not huge. Uh, I mean, uh, theoretically, the, the plastic bit with the chip costs about uh, euro a dollar and probably with your volumes even less (laughs) and and then this keeping the whole infrastructure but you should immediately start thinking that it will actually help you to save some wells and uh, always the biggest cost is the labor so if you can somehow automate the data gathering one other principle that we have is that states should only ask the same information only once Uh, once only principle so uh, even with that you save huge amounts of time because if you ask the same question three times and if you have diligent bureaucrats they will also record it three times and then somebody has to manage three different databases and so on So there's quite a lot of thinking. But I think, yes, the key is that the country itself has to 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 really want it. Uh, And, and of course, one can advise. And what I would say here is one is the technological part of it. But I think two other things need to be taken into account. The other one is the legal infrastructure, Mm. what the local laws actually do allow. And we just before discussed when we were preparing for this that in India there was also a hiccup when the Supreme Court, I understand, decided to take a pause and uh, look a bit at, at the whole thing. And in Europe, there's a country where, where the central government has never, I think, been hugely violent to its citizens, at least for a couple of centuries, but where all the citizens are so afraid of having a single identity, which their own country, which their queen would know,
3: <laughs> which <laughs> well, is, is surprising. Well, she may change we, her and, mind and, now. you know, <laughs>
1: we should be vice versa because we were occupied for 50 years. Right. I thought today to start, does anybody know what centenary is today? Is there anybody in the audience? Uh, somebody there is one, two. <laughs> the Canadian does. Uh, yeah. <laughs> of the great Soviet Socialist October Revolution. But oh, right. I think for us it was vice versa. We always thought that the government anyway knew everything and we didn't get anything out of it. Of course, lately we have found out that during the Soviet time there was not too much they knew, but, right. but anyway. So that's, that's one thing is the legal part and then the other one is the mindset of the people. Right. You know, if they really will not take it up, it's very hard to do. We started with the electronic ID card as a parallel, voluntary parallel to the passport. But then when people notice that actually it makes life better, even those who on principle in the beginning resisted will make the calculus that actually, you know, if I can vote with two minutes behind my computer instead of going to a precinct and spending an hour on a nice Sunday or a bad mm-hmm. Sunday, but my my Sunday, to vote, it's, it's an advantage, especially yeah. for young people. Yeah. And, and the same with, with everything else, Absolutely. that if, if you make uh, the habit, uh, if you make it easy, what we also have to do—we have prosecuted, for example, tax officials and police officials who have access uh, and can look at people's data. But if we establish that they looked at data which was not on their desk as their work, they get punished. They either lose their job or they get—I uh, don't th- yeah. think anybody has got the real it's question sentence, of trust, but, uh, isn't it? it
0: yes, you have but you to have, to, have be... to also
1: prove it to the people that it's, right. it's not just a theoretical possibility. But but if you don't follow the rules, it can be established and right. it will be sanctioned. Right. But, uh, but I think, yes, it's, uh, it very quickly becomes so complicated
2: that it really needs uh, local ownership as well. Yeah.
0: So, so thank you very much. Let me turn to one, Dana. One, and then one additional yes, point on yes. what you
2: were just saying. Uh, again, coming back to the other bit, right? So there was uh, uh, one of the tricks that uh, – I don't know whether it was intentional or whether it was uh, the way it was done. Uh, there was in a couple of years back we were asked to link our bank accounts to other – Without telling us what benefits we would get or what yeah, would be right. the flip side of it, uh, it did take a slightly longer time for people to actually do that because you know it was secondary and you know when people had time they would do it. But not linking it to a benefit or a, uh, anything else probably also works. Today now the bank account is connected to the Aadhaar, it is connected to the income tax, and now the whole monetary thing is kind of uh, has an Aadhaar uh, base. So those are certain things that you need to do. And again, maybe it's a cultural aspect, like you said. In Europe, it might work, it might not.
0: Thank you. So, Dana, uh, sorry, uh, coming to you now. I just wanted to have that conversation on the IDs uh, a little bit further. Uh, But for you, so you're working on uh, digital exclusion, inclusion, especially for young people. But I'd also like you to comment on what you've heard from the two gentlemen here. So please.
4: Go ahead. (coughs) Thank you very much for inviting me. It's really a pleasure to be here. Um, What I wanted to say is that critically understanding how we can use ICT in order to achieve a more inclusive society for all and more particular for disadvantaged youth community has always been one of the key questions in my personal life in my professional life in my academic life actually so just to talk to you how come actually 10 years ago I started studying communication sciences at the FU university of brussels because i as personal life i wanted to use technology to cover north south issues i wanted to become a journalist but once i began be, uh, once i studied there it became very uh, and clear quite quickly that there are huge differences between and within social groups in the way uh, people access technologies, use technologies, the skills they have, and this is what is being studied in the digital uh, inequality literature. And I was lucky enough, actually four years later, to be able to conduct a study for the Brussels Capital Region, in which I looked into the causes and the reasons why some uh, young people living in disadvantaged neighborhoods here in Brussels, between 15 and 25 years old, are being excluded, and what is eventually the potential of the digital uh, for those young people? And, of course, I cannot go into detail and say everything, I I cannot share every um, research uh, result, but if there is one thing I would like to share with you today, it would be that When we talk about um, disadvantaged youth and the way they use digital media and the way it can empower them, there are different profiles actually. There is not one prototype of the digital excluded young people. No, it isn't. On the contrary, there are different profiles and the way uh, some young people are on the scale of being digital included or digital excluded is influenced by different variables. It's socio-economical variables, it's the social support that they get, it's the education that they get, it's, it's also the need they have to use digital media. So the conclusion is that since what I've seen on the field is there are young people who are really poor, and they use digital media, and it helps them. It helps them to find a job. It helps them to uh, to to do their homework. It helps them to help them their parents. So it has a power. I believe in the force and the the, the force of empowerment through digital media. But and I think it's very important when we're talking about uh, digital media, there is there are new risks of digital exclusion amidst those groups of young people. Even here in Europe? Even here in Europe. So... When we are uh, having of proposing policy recommendation, we have to take this into account, actually. So there is um, potential, but there are also risks. So it's a double discourse, actually.
0: So and if it's it not poverty, Dana, if mm-hmm. it's not poverty, what is it? Is it just inertia or is it lack of access to the technology?
4: It's a combination of everything, actually. I believe it's... Um, It's difficult to say it's a personal, uh, how do we say, guilt, not guilt, but responsibility. No, it isn't a personal responsibility. Of course, Mm -hmm. everyone has the capacity and the will to do something. But what is even more important is the um, community in which someone... The mindset issue that uh, Yuri was talking
0: about. Mm -hmm. Right.
4: So, yeah, so indeed, the research I did is um, in a developed context uh, it's a social welfare system. we know, but I believe that those results that I have seen in my research can also be translated in um, developing que- uh, contexts because from my associative life, I see that uh, young people uh, wherever they live, they have the same aspira- aspirations they, they use the technology in, in similar ways or should i say they wanted to u- they want to use it in similar ways to change the world and i see it in acpypm where we concretely um, have projects in which young people from togo from canada uh, from um, congo i mean are using technology to make small videos and on agriculture agriculture for youth it was called and they really can participate in the european debate on development agriculture and africa so and are you part of the, the European Development Debate? I was. We were two years ago. This right, year and right. last year, we were part okay. of the okay. EDDs, European Development Days. Right, okay. So Fine. Yeah.
0: So, so I also wanted to ask you, but you said to me that women, the, the challenge facing women is very similar to the challenge facing young people. Mm. right?
4: Again, it is the same. Um, we see that, young, uh, that people in general who are... Uh, uh, socially disadvantaged have a higher risk to be uh, digital disadvantaged. And there is a structural inequality. And it is actually the classical variables. Right. It's low education, uh, poverty, uh, lack of... Yeah, that, that are the main reasons why people are not able to access them,
0: mm-hmm. not able to use them, or do not have the competences. Right. Thank you very much. Let, let's uh, open the floor to some comments and questions for you as well, because uh, there are so many uh, people here with expertise. I would like to ask uh, from the EU, Daniel Gurev, who's been working on... Uh, you're at DEFCO, Daniel, right? And you're sitting here. and uh, You've been working with... Uh, Georgieva, Kristalina Georgieva as well, who was involved in many issues to do with development. And I was just wondering how important in DEFCO has the uh, IT issue, the digitalization issue become? Can you give us a few of your ideas? And please, I, I would like others to come in as well. So if I could ask you sure. to prepare Thanks, your Shada. questions. Yeah.
5: Um, well, perhaps just a few words to, uh, to flag what have we have been doing uh, in the EU now with the brilliant leadership, of course, of uh, of this presidency. Uh, As such, the the issue has not been new because uh, the EU and notably the European Commission has experience in uh, investing in digital solutions in the development Mm -hmm. world. So over the last, uh, if you take the last multi-annual financial framework and uh, this one, I think we've invested roughly 400 million uh, in various digital solutions, be it infrastructure, but also uh, governance. Uh,
0: 400 million in, in uh, developing countries. In
5: developing countries, yes. That would be uh, DEFCO funding, so to speak, because I think on top of that you would have uh, other sources. Um, and uh, 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 not a negligible portion of that has been through public private a private partnership of sorts so through what we in jargon uh, call blending uh, but I think start coming back to your introduction the new SDGs probably have um, allowed us to accelerate our thinking on, on how digital can reshape uh, development policy as a whole um, given that perhaps digital has this um, very strong connotation of being capable of to interconnect uh, issues and uh, bring complex uh, matters uh, closer together. And this is at the heart of the SDGs after all, because we speak of universality, uh, interconnectedness between uh, right. uh, problems, and digital often, it's not the only solution, but can be uh, certainly a big facilitator uh, to some of the Uh, development issues we face across the world. Uh, This is why also um, when translating the SDGs in our own policy framework uh, the so-called new European consensus of development from earlier this year uh, digital is also at the heart of it because we recognize it as a facilitator and for those that might not be familiar the new consensus is essentially our collective vision our meaning still uh, EU28 and Commission and EU institutions on how we're going to shape uh, development policy for the next uh, 15 years or so. Um, But we have also developed a um, specific policy uh, that now is being also uh, deployed with the help of uh, the Estonian presidency uh, with a new, uh, what in our jargon we call staff working document on digital for development from earlier in May this year, focusing on a number of issues that have been touched upon by by colleagues here. Um, But what might perhaps be particularly relevant for for, for this debate is that um, we have a number of processes that can accelerate this uh, work on this. Uh, Today, as we speak, um, the operational board of the new uh, external investment plan, uh, which is... uh, yeah. basically eu 's equivalent if you want to the Juncker plan uh, inside Europe is meeting right. uh, and and there, what will happen today we would adopt five windows of investment, uh, including uh, basically investment facilitating investment in developing countries with uh, notably guarantee the guarantee of the eu budget to ensure investment right. uh, um, for private companies, private entities, perhaps in, in areas or, or uh, countries or uh, uh, sectors, domains, that yeah. sectors that might be deemed too risky without this right. public backing. Right. And one of the key areas will be digital. So there will be a, a, a full digital window in there, uh, which probably will help uh, to come up with sure. some fairly innovative solutions.
0: I'm glad you mentioned yeah. that because of what you said previously doesn't seem very ambitious. I mean, 400 million yeah. uh, out of an EU budget, of, which is very big. Indeed, so I think th-
5: this is part of this logic of uh, leapfrogging from you know millions to, to, to trillions and certainly digital will be uh, a key right. domain. Uh, just to throw it into the debate, an, uh, another important upcoming event is the EU Africa Summit, so right. at the end of November, yes. where this, and notably the focus on youth, uh, gender, uh, will be a very important part of the, of the, the develop- deliverables and uh, uh, things we foresee. Uh, I'm back with my current job, uh, so Stefano Manservisi in DEFCO from, from Bulgaria, so the, the presidency that will come, uh, after yours, uh, they are very keen to continue the good work on, on digital. Uh, right. So I think this, this debate will and this discussion will remain particularly relevant for, for many months to come.
0: Right. So it stays on the EU agenda even once uh, Estonia has sort of moved away from the steering uh, wheel as it were. Thank you. Thank you very much, Daniel. That's very useful. Uh, I'd like uh, other people to join in as well. Uh, let's take the gentleman there. Yes, please. Uh, could, could, could you keep your hand up? Yeah. Could you get a microphone? To, please introduce yourself and...
6: Uh. Yes, hello, I'm Gregor, Gregor Cooper. Um, I have a question Gregor when we say... Gregor
0: Cooper sa- from? Sorry.
6: Uh, from his way or the
1: press club?
0: Okay, great.
1: Or actually both. Um, I have a question when we say, talk about digital for development um, and we n- read that 50% of Africa does not have access to electricity. Um, I have a question uh, to S- Subo. I think you have probably an experience of India electrifying and how did that impact digitalization and what role did the mobiles play in
4: that?
0: Right. Thanks. So before I turn to you, can I take just uh, uh, one more question? Uh, anyone else coming in at this point? Yes. Uh, Michael and then uh, Michael Swan. Yes, please. Keep your hand up, Michael. Yeah. Please introduce yourself as well.
6: Sorry, Michael Swan from the from the External Action Service. Um, strikes me there's two aspects uh, to digitalization for development. One is the use of technology as it applies to the recipients of development cooperation, and the other is the use of technology as it applies to the delivery, so to the, to our systems, if you like. And so, a question to the to the panel is um, whether you think that. Uh, currently um, the European Union is asking uh, the right questions uh, of technology in these two respects or whether we are just trying to use technology to give faster, sharper answers to old questions, whether we've really internalized a lot of the, the new logic of the technologies that actually take us be into new domains mm. rather than just reinventing the old ones. Mm.
0: Yes. Mm. I see your point. Yes, the gentleman over there, please. I'd also uh, ask uh, Ahmed, Ahmed Dirmish from UNCDF, you're here, Ahmed, to talk a little bit about the last billion or the last mile, because you're working a lot with the disconnected, if you like, communities. And Lord Brunil as well? Is Lord is here? Yeah, hi, Lord. You're from the cabinet of the Belgian uh, Development Corporation Minister Alexander De Ducro, who's a bit of a crusader on digital as well. So I'd like the both of you to come in as well. But first, let's take a question from yourself, please.
2: Uh, thank you. Nico Keppens from DEVCO, we're talking on hi, my Nico. own behalf. Hello. Um, digitalization is often linked to automization and then to creation or abandoning jobs yeah. uh, in this context. Do you think that it can help to the need of creating a an, an universal basic income? And secondly, um, I talked in another meeting with people from you of, uh, um, well, people who provide crowd uh, employment and they feel uh, empowered if digitalization would be given to developing countries because it would help them to create jobs. Is there a risk or could it be an advantage to, to have these crowd employment uh, schemes?
0: Right. Thank you. Uh, let's start with you, Subi, uh, with the question about the electrification, and then go to the other panelists.
2: Yeah. So um, electrification, I, I think there have been—it's uh, a—it's a big challenge. Um, but the mobile uh, um, or the penetration of mobile uh, has actually helped that a lot. Um, there have been—I've um, uh, seen uh, in India and more so in Africa, actually. Um, a lot of innovative services around providing charging stations, for example, mm. right, done by generators. Um, so electrification, I think the bigger challenge with uh, electrification is literacy, uh, right? And one of the things probably that uh, they not touched upon is, you know, literacy is closely linked to digital or <laughs> digital dividend, right? So uh, the the... Answer to your question potentially would be that you know mobile penetration does help in not having that electrification aspect of it, uh, but uh, electrification has more impact on literacy, which in turn has an impact on on penetration of digital into you know real rural so areas. So how is
0: India? India literacy rates are quite low. So how is India sort of overcoming this challenge?
2: Uh, so there's there's an example that uh, where TCS is doing a bit of it. Um, it's called. Uh, I forget the name, it's called adult education. But it is uh, uh, only uh, getting to literacy where people require the first 100, 200 words.
0: It's a computer-based functional literacy Functional program. literacy, yeah. Yeah. yeah.
2: So it is part of two things. Uh, one is uh, being able to write and speak and read. Uh, but it's not. it doesn't start from teaching uh, people uh, alphabets and, and grading that way. Okay. It just goes directly into, you know, it's almost like teaching a kid... Uh, apple and banana and stuff like that so it's it's pictorial based and it's the words that are usually used that's one bit and the second bit is uh math literacy right so there's a lot of unbanked uh, uh, people in india so people who don't have anything to do with banking or the banking system at all and the biggest uh, um, biggest barrier there is not even knowing basic additions of you know stuff so they, they, they just stay back home and this affects women to a large extent right. um uh, there's some statistics that I've seen that 17% is the illiteracy rate globally, and India it is 27%, um, and uh, more than 60, 70% of that is women. So there's a gender aspect to it. Uh, but there are such activities happening, and I think it is generational. Uh, the younger with access to school and with access to digital and Google and all of that, I think the literacy rate will definitely fall.
0: Right. Okay. Do you want to, Adana uh,
4: come in on some of the questions? Yes, I wanted to say, I feel it's really my duty to be the voice today of those who are excluded, or at risk of being digitally excluded. So I really applaud the digital for development, but we still have to be careful to take everyone with us. So we have to, not only to have the infrastructure, but we also have to help those people who cannot read, because that's the basic, uh, who cannot use computers. So Yeah, it's very important that we do it together and that we don't forget that technology is just a tool. It's not a mean in itself. Technology should help us to develop. And those people who cannot use technology for the moment, well, either we help them with technology or we help them in another way. So that's what I wanted to to this
0: debate so do you think that people are moving on without thinking of the the excluded? I
4: have the feeling that yes okay. for the example of young people as I said okay there is a part of young people who really can use those technologies and it's really empowering for them mm-hmm. but there is still an important part of the population yeah, and but,
0: mm-hmm. but do you stop progress for that I mean how do, how do you play no it's a,
4: it's a two um, how do we say two the Vitesse um, yeah Two tracks, two yeah. tracks uh, policy. I think it's and and it's technology and social. I mean, when you talk about digital inclusion, I have the feeling we have to put the way the word inclusion back in digital. It's about humans. It's not about the technology. Mm. It's really we have to rethink. We have to rethink uh, that policy. So indeed, technology is leading to fundamental structural changes, social orders which gives us new opportunities but it also
0: uh, calls
4: for reflections about Mm. how are we going to do it. Mm.
0: So that's a bit of Michael's uh, point, in fact. Yuri, are we doing that? Are are people moving so fast ahead that we're leaving behind so many people, even within our societies here in Europe, not to mention the developing world?
1: Probably, yes, but uh, but the question is what can be done. I actually thought how to, if I would have... To had to answer all the questions, but a big you bit can, of the work has, has been done. Well, first I would, would bring in the concept of technophobia. I think we all have it, but in different doses. I think a mild uh, dose of that is if your program offers you an update, and then you think, mm, I will not do it today. But of course, then you discover if you postpone it enough, there will be the next one, and when you finally update, there will be so many changes that you are lost. So you somehow have to deal with this phobia. When uh, I mentioned that we started from the beginning of 2000s, of course, the biggest risk group in our case was older citizens so the question was what to do with them and uh, you can always imagine that the children will help them or grandchildren but we also organized for example pensioners computer clubs Mm -hmm. so they could try to to use it and and of course then this is also an issue that uh, if if you start with people in active working life in 20 years all your pensioners will still be able to do it because uh, programs become easier and simpler there was the question about universal basic income, which mm-hmm. I don't think anybody addressed, and I would no. connect it with this jobs dilemma. Well, I don't have an answer, but I think history teaches us that from the Luddites, we have discovered that jobs don't disappear, they change, and that's the risk. And, and somehow uh, people should get the idea that uh, probably what you started doing at 18 is not good enough at 68 we uh, probably can think about it as uh, two or three different careers or lifelong learning or something like that. But I think that's the only solution. because otherwise, To answer it otherwise would say, I don't want progress, which is not a smart answer. And then we'll notice that life in Europe is so good, but others are developing so much faster and, you know, We will discover that the last place that produced TVs, which are as deep as they are wide, was Europe, (laughs) surprisingly. But universal basic income, I personally, just my comment, I don't support because of the moral hazard. We are what we do as gainful things, and if you get the basic income, this demotivates you. That's and another uh, debate, I think. Yes, so we, yes, we've that had was, that. But that was we, the question. We've had that, that debate. was the question. <laughs> it, was,
0: uh, it was also about jobs. So you've answered yeah.
1: that one. And right. just as uh, solution to the last mile issue, we have the same issue uh, with broadband. So it's on a different level, but still. Hmm. And, and what I would, would say is what we, uh, we used to be much poorer and the computers used to be much more expensive in the 90s. But what we found as a solution, public libraries, we had a very good network. Hmm. So they instituted in the countryside uh, computer uh, classes open after, after hours as well another one of course schools and we've had a fantastic uh non-foreseen effect of that if you are in a big town there's lots of things to do but in the country place in a good case you had a sports hall and then you had the computer class Mm-hmm. And we know when we look at our startup infrastructure, quite a lot of, of founders and, and stuff in those companies are not from the capital, but actually from smaller places. Because what they did in their spare evenings was they spent their time in the computer classes. Right. So it's the question of, of motivating and, and finding a solution which is, is cost-effective. Because uh, you know there's no point in bringing a broadband solution to a remote uh, household in the forests if nobody will use it.
0: But what about what about um uh, encouraging technologies which are, let's say, cheaper. I think India and many other developing countries are doing that. I mean, coming up with technologies that are cheaper, more affordable, but also do the trick, not just mobile, but also in the, in the, in the world of smartphones and uh, iPads, et cetera. So could the EU be doing that? Could it be uh, helping, encouraging, if subsidizing even?
1: If, if you take the life cycle of, of whatever... Um electronic service. I think uh, actually the service started when smartphones were not around yet. So the question is that you should have the same thing if there is customer need for the smartphone, but also keep the basic or the cheaper version, which then, or uh, the cheaper either to run or to consume, if in your case there is a fee for it uh, right. to, to keep, keep going there. But also what we notice with technology, very often it's not, uh, not uh, the um, end user who pays, you know, this famous saying that if it's for free, you are the uh, product. <laughs> but in, in the case uh, with agricultural information, probably it would be easier to charge those who are, are buying these products because they are buying bulk and they have extra resources. Right. And they are interested to advertise their buying price. Uh, so you necessarily don't have to collect with, from, from the poorest end and from the single, single uh, right. person.
0: Thank you very much. I do want to pursue, to pursue Dana's point about let's all uh, move, uh, let's not forget uh, that technology is a tool, not an objective. And I want to go to Ahmed, actually. Ahmed, you're working for UNCDF, which is working with the, the, the last mile people, right?
7: Right, yes. Um, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. Uh, so the United Nations Capital Development Fund um, is a small team uh, within uh, UNDP, the development program, uh, mainly focusing on financial services and financial access. Um, And we have recently, over the past few years, Become increasingly aware of the need to shift to digital just to leverage the opportunities in terms of you know making the unbanked or giving opportunities to the unbanked to you know have formal access to financial services because that opens the gateway to better access to health, better access to education, just the simple means of payment and a means of store of value other than cash can fundamentally change some of the, the opportunities many people in, in very rural or very depraved and, and vulnerable environments. Um, so that's kind of what we do. Uh, the question of the last mile this is a great bridge from Yuri's uh, uh, points just before. Is we sort of see it in two different ways. One is very operational, the physical last mile. You know, the rural parts of Malawi, the northern parts of Nigeria, you know, the, the bush in, in northern uh, Myanmar is really far, very hard to access. Um, and you did? Well, we do with our program and our, and our partners. Right. Um, and, you know, simply put, there's not going to be a bank branch out there. Um, there might be one clinic, um, you know, they're burning coal or wood for light, not just for heat. Um, and so all of these things are very, very practical problems that we need to, challenge, we need to, to solve. The other aspect of The Last Mile is the mindset. Um, to your point about, you know, using your libraries and giving free classes after hours, I mean, that might seem intuitive and obvious now, but, you know, when you're trying to think of a solution to a problem, it is not so obvious. And I think the, the relationship we have with governments in particular, uh, Myanmar and Malawi is a great example. Um, someone might get their first phone in Malawi, you know. Um, it's not going to be a smartphone. But in Myanmar, it very likely will be. Yeah, right. Despite right. the infrastructure is fundamentally similar. You know, and why in, is
0: that? Because of the neighborhood.
7: Neighborhood. Your neighbors matter. Your friends matter. Um, it's the last mile mindset, you know, to, to a degree. And so then how do we create the same opportunities when we're thinking in the sense of sort of Andahar or UPI? So Malawi right now is thinking about a universal ID and maybe putting a wallet on there so I could use that ID to pay. Yeah. Nigeria thought the same thing, and they were going to partner with MasterCard on that. So, is that limiting? Is that creating opportunities? You know, being fully interoperable, which is sort of the vision of the centralized nature of the India decision. And so, I think in our work, you know, struggling with these sort of high level policy questions and trying to translate them into an operational solution, which is where we work with the private sector because the government has a role, but it's not. You know, yeah. there's, there's, a, there's a collaboration that's just fundamentally necessary yeah. to find the solution. In the case of India, you brought a lot of players with you in the context of you, not you personally, but in terms of the government. I think he
0: personally did it too.
7: Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you have the capacity to really influence the private sector because of the public sector relationships. And, you know, in a place like Malawi or Uganda, the relationship between yes, government and the private sector is not quite as tight. So then how do you create these incentives? Mm-hmm of large right. mobile network operator to invest, well, voice and data's okay. going down. So, anyways, a um, d- lot of stuff. Okay. Stop Michael, there. you
0: wanted to come in very quickly? Yeah. Then I'll turn to loan. Michael, just very quickly then.
6: Just, just a, t- a question arising then, because um, in 2015, the UN had this expert panel on the applications of technology to peacekeeping. Mm. Um, I just wonder if, you know, maybe I'm just not aware uh, it's going on right now, but Is there anything analogous on uh, thinking through some of these questions about the application of technology to development?
0: Right. When you mentioned Myanmar, I was thinking the same thing, actually.
7: Yeah, so it's it's a great question. Um, Recently, uh, there was an event uh, in the U.S., I believe in the Treasury, on the role of blockchain in development. I literally walked into that thinking I have an hour to spare. I might learn something. Um, I walked away absolutely convinced that that's a thing. And what Um, is it? Just quickly. um, So a blockchain is sort of one jargon further along from distributed ledger, which is basically a way of decentralizing systems, if I can oversimplify it. And it cuts out the middleman in many of our traditional and legacy systems, whether it's identification. So you don't have to – the way kind of, you know, the Andahar does with, you know, somebody consolidates your birth certificate and your school certificates, and now you have this thing blockchain in a sense as a technology makes it easier. And so, you know, if I didn't have to prove who I am because the system does it for me, does that give me access to a broader range of services? So whether it's remittances, whether it's land rights, whether it's all these components for development, we're really looking to find solutions like distributed ledger um, to provide access. Sorry, it's a hard question to answer. Thank you, Amit. Um, I can answer that. Yeah.
0: Yeah, conversation continues. Uh, thank you very much, uh Ahmed and Michael. So alone please. Yeah. Just explain who you are very quickly. Yeah,
8: thank you. So I'm the Digital for Development Advisor for the Belgian Minister of Development Cooperation and Vice Prime Minister Alexandre Lecreux. I want to begin by saying that digitalization in itself, it doesn't bring any good. If you just digitalize current processes, nothing changes. Mm-hmm. Take birth registration for example, In, like Tanzania, people have to walk up to two days to reach the nearest village where they can subscribe or inscribe their children into the national register. Now if we change this process from pen to paper by typing it into a computer, they still have to walk two days and nothing changed really. Mm-hmm. What changes is if we change the process to an sms based process mm-hmm. which exists now in Tanzania people can send from the from their own house from the nearest healthcare post send an, a text message to a certain number in a certain form and the newborn will be immediately inscribed into the national register that's doing things differently that's adding value now, uh, what Ahmed said about the uh, different roles between public and private sector, I think that's very important. For us, we see Belgium as a small donor, and we know infrastructural project. We tried it once. We did something in uh, Morocco, and we helped 40 villages getting an Internet connection. But then the EU came, and they did 4,000 villages. So we felt silly. <laughs> so... What we do now is we focus on what the World Development Report calls the analog complements. If you've read it, you know what it means. But in short, it's like um, skills development, legislation, bringing down trade barriers. And that's what we try to do. As a, as a government, we try to make um, it as attractive as possible for private sector companies to start investing in something. We want to create the business case. If there's like a a tax on ICT equipment of 100%, then people aren't going to bring in ICT equipment. Companies won't want to invest there because it's too costly. But if we bring down those barriers, those tariffs, and we can educate the people that they know how to use the equipment, then we have a business case. Then we have the billions that the private sector can bring in. Mm. And that's going to get things really started.
0: So as a catalyst, you go in first and make sure that the facilities, the environment is there. Exactly.
8: We want to create the environment. And to pick in on what, um, I forgot your name from DEFCO said as well. Daniel. Daniel, we're very happy that there's a staff working document now but what we would like to do as well if it's still possible under the estonian presidency is take new council conclusions to operationalize that staff working document this is it's not even a first step anymore this is something big the staff working document but there's still more to do and we'll keep pulling the chart if i can say to to make it possible Mm -hmm,
0: mm -hmm. i mean just to operationalize a document can you be slightly more specific what we're talking about
1: uh, Yes, uh, first to answer to you, I hope you will have them in about a month.
0: But what what is it? (laughs) Uh, What are we talking uh, about? uh,
1: Most most people here know EU better than me, Uh, but uh, council conclusions is the marching marching orders for the EU, which is on the theoretically possibly highest political level to say this is what we do. Staff working document is more a commission internal thing, if I may say so.
0: Right. And we have our uh, working document on digital and development coming out soon as well, and I think quite a lot of you here are going to be contributing to it. at least I hope you are. Can I take a few more comments and questions from yourself? so Bianca first, and then Jarrett, please introduce yourself. Keep your hand up, bianca
9: Hello, my name is bianca Barmla i 'm the team leader of an EU funded project on public diplomacy called Policy and Outreach Partnership. And I want to dig a little bit deeper. What um, has come out from the research of Dana Skour- Skourmans, the digital divide within a developing country, Belgium, and to try to understand a bit further where that comes from. Because in developing countries, it's very often simply access: the electricity, the internet. Um, is there? Have you done any research on the role of? how that technology is presented to people in terms of the communications and the language that is used, it's, uh, working in communications, I could imagine that um, perhaps by, it's not a question necessarily of um, the fear um, of technology because young people, you are researching young people, whatever the background, they're usually not afraid of technology, but maybe the language... That is used, or the images are not accessible to a wide audience.
0: Yeah, Bianca, can I turn the question to you as well? Because you said, and I know that you're working on this public diplomacy. How much do you use uh, digital in your in your outreach as uh, as an EU uh, practitioner? If you yeah, like, we yeah, we
9: try to push it as much as possible. We use live polling. Which is which uses technology to do but surveys. This is
0: in Asia, with Asian countries. Um,
9: with Asian countries, we've, we've also tried it in South Africa, and most recently we did. Um, we've also connected through technology audiences, young audiences in South Africa, with the upcoming um, youth summit, the EU Africa Youth Summit. So we are trying to push for it as much as possible, and um, but of course also listen to what the audiences we work with need and um, and what they're ready to, uh, to use also.
0: Mm-hmm. Right, I'll, I'll give you the floor in a second, but let's take Jared. Jarrett, is Canada leading the way as usual on this as well? We're getting so used to Canada being the global pusher and shover, right?
3: Uh, thanks, Shadow. I'm not sure in this area we're quite there yet, but we're uh, making big strides in the last couple of years. i just say kudos to the Estonian presidency for all the work you're doing on putting digital across the board on the agenda. I think that's hugely important in this town. And moves are afoot, but I think uh, Estonia has proven at what point you can go from a recipient country to a donor with it, with strong economic growth that comes with having that digital first uh, mantra. So I'm a big believer in that, so congratulations. On UBI, I think we'd have a different discussion, but uh, that, that's, yeah. that's for another yeah. day. Uh, I just have a quick anecdote, uh, comment, and a question. My anecdote is I had the privilege of observing last time that uh, there were elections in the Democratic Republic of Congo. I was based in Uvira in South Kivu, and it really struck me there that you're in one of the you know, least stable parts of the world with, with huge atrocities, levels of violence... And I saw one of the most beautiful democratic exercises I've ever seen in my life. And, and what really stuck out was I met this this woman who had two children, young mother, you know, walking 10 miles to be able to vote because for her that was so fundamentally important. But in her hand, she did have a Nokia phone with two SIM cards that had access to a Chinese network and to another local network in a way that she was out out-digitalizing myself even with the tools we had for our job. And that really stuck with me that in some ways you can leapfrog. With the right investments, they can be very um, cost-efficient. You don't have to do the fundamental traditional bricks and mortar we've already done. So it it really stuck with me that that philosophy can apply even in LDCs as well. Um, And then just the plug is that uh, Canada and EU, we're having our first-ever development dialogue next week in Brussels, uh, which is a nice deliverable under what most people don't know, the political uh, our strategic partnership agreement, which most most people, know about our free trade agreement, but we've done a lot in the other side of the shop as well. Uh, So I just wanted to give a bit of a plug for that. But my question, so I'm sorry, this is a bit long-winded. I was really struck by your your comment about exclusion uh, and... I'm a big believer in what can we do to help that. And I think what's missing here a little bit is the question of education. Uh, And for me, digitization, I agree, they're just tools. What's key is is a culture of innovation. And I haven't heard anything here about what we can do in the the domain of education to equip young people (laughs) using little means, but, but smart means to be able to give them those tools and those skills needed so that they can themselves right. take advantage of this technology. That's
0: right. So, yeah. That's right. That one of the questions that I had said of innovation uh, uh, important as well. I can take one final comment. Uh, please, sir, identify yourself. Just keep your hand up. So, yeah.
3: Uh, Mohammed Karia, uh, from a group uh, Safu. Uh, I'm in, uh, from the uh, retail industry. Um, my question um, is about uh, development universal development of um, digital, uh, digital um, uh, revolution. I mean uh, digital development uh, is now facing uh, many uh, serious um, uh, challenges like uh, uh, like um, hacking like uh, uh, ransomware uh, viruses like um, fake news, etc etc. So do you think uh, for uh, develop more economy and the digital revolution, we need more stronger uh, global and universal governance and how. Hmm.
0: Thank you. That's, I think, a very great question for another debate, but I do appreciate you bringing in it, and I think I would like uh, Yuri to, to bring it in, to, to respond to it. Okay, guys, last chance. All right. Okay, so uh, let's start with you, Yuri. And while you're answering um, these c- different comments and questions from, uh, from our friends here, I also want you to look a little bit ahead. Say you're in 2050 already. Do you think this will sound like such an old-fashioned, archaic, uh, you know, uh, boring discussion where people will have really moved on and will be really in a new world, not just of technology, but also Michael's point of ideas?
1: Oh, yeah. Uh. Very hard to predict, especially the future, I think. That's what Mark Twain (laughs) said. uh, uh, Well, where could I start? Well, first on on the leapfrogging, I agree that it, uh, let's say, is possible on a citizen level. I mean, uh, we in Estonia never tried Minitel because we understood that wasn't their technology anymore. But uh, and, and I also think that uh, the computers with what we started uh, also on the government level, we invested quite a lot in the mid-90s. Of course, we invested in, in the best possible and financially available mean. But what I mean is as a society, you can't uh, somehow, you know, become from, from a very basic agrarian society and turn into a sophisticated industrial producer. So in that sense, I think, uh, let's say it's, it's possible and you should use the possibilities, but it doesn't happen, there's not magic cure that tomorrow there is a solution if you just make the right choice what concerns international cooperation well we have to very consciously understand that uh, all countries are not friends with all countries mm, you know uh, wouldn't it be magic if uh, the Russian government would cooperate with the American Congress in investigating what went on actually? I think they're
0: part of the thing isn't it they're part of the discussion <laughs> exactly but,
1: but <laughs> the <wrong> me, side. <laughs> it, it will not happen it will not happen so I think that's one of the solutions that's why I said it's uh, when you are developing systems you have to start thinking privacy side to that so mm. the people would feel safe and also what you have to do about cyber security mm. one is of course if your systems are hackable but imagine what can happen if your health systems somebody could change the data there so it's the integrity of data as well one is the data theft when you can make a claim that somebody knows something about me but what if somebody changes something about me and that that's the really scary bit mm. of it mm. So, so that's, that's what, uh, what I think those who are responsible should do. There was this debate about this, uh, um, how would say, uh, distributed ledger. It, it's a good idea. And I think, you know, it's the people-to-people trust thing. But if we think, for example, about an identity, uh, social contract is a virtual thing mm-hmm. which sociologists have imagined up. Everybody understands who has thought about it, what it means. But if we think, where does it manifest in real life? I think one of the most basic things is the state telling this is, this is the person who he claims to be, this is his picture, and this paper shows it to you, or this electronic identity shows it to you. So maybe there are some things that you can't contract out to the, either peer-to-peer or private sector mm. things. But then again, you have to be very careful. You don't want to do everything by the state as well. Uh, in our case, for example, banking is totally separate. The only meeting point is if you want to identify yourself through the state system, it's one of the options for the banks used to have code sheets, now we have mobile ID, then we have a private sector thing which is smart ID, so there are different options but it's, it's not directly connected I mean the state doesn't have access to your bank account you have to make sure that as well mm-hmm. uh, and I didn't answer the EAS question because it was, I felt a bit provoking, but what I would say very much the same Belgian perspective that you know, we uh, Nobody built us broadband, uh, even when we were poor and broadband was not available. But, I mean, that's something actually what commercial companies should do as far as possible, and then you find the solution for the remaining bit. So that's why we are also very much looking at, at the solutions which are, let's say, up to our size and capability. Uh, but to, to say in general, the, there have been yesterday's solutions. I'm not so sure. That's why I said in the beginning. Mm. Uh, right. the, one of the dilemmas is things have been done pretty well, so it's hard to leave those behind because – it mm. takes a uh, leap of uh, belief that the new one will actually be better. Because mm-hmm. if you have an old and proven system, you know, what's the proverb? Take, right. take the longer but known road. Don't, don't take a shortcut, yeah. you know. Sorry for being so long.
0: So, so just, uh, just uh, Dana, go ahead. Yeah.
4: <clears throat> Thank you for your question. So. Um, about how can you use technologies, um, about how to come over digital divides here uh, amongst young people in developed countries. Actually, in the literature, we see that there is a digital divide of the first degree, which is the divide on the structural level, the access. But we go more and more to a digital divide of the second degree, where we look at uh, competences and skill, actually. So when you ask me the question, what can we do, I would answer, besides still investing in infrastructure, because there are young people who do not have uh, internet at home, who do have or they have to go to uh, internet cafes or things like this. We also, and we still need to invest in education at school, but also outside schools. Because when we talk about disadvantaged youth, most of the time they are dropouts. So we have to find them, for example, in uh, local uh, youth houses. I, I don't know the exact term. We should go Youth there, clubs. Youth Me- clubs, meeting yeah. clubs, we should go there, and we should Fire. start from their interests. And once we found their interests, we can integrate, or not, technology. And this is, I think, one of the ways to really integrate technology in the lives of young people. So to answer our, your question, is it a question of language? Yes and no. No, it's not the language we are talking. It's really the language of the social reality in which young people are living. And if we can understand that, and it's a dialogue. It's not when people pushing it on someone else. It's really a di- dialogue and understanding together how can we use technology to change individual lives but also change things in the community while using technology. I hope I answer to your question.
0: Thank you. Uh, Shubhi, please.
2: Yeah, so I've got a lot of those questions here, and I'll try and see whether I can catch some of them. Uh, I think one of the key things that you talked about in terms of skill development, um, I think that the whole STEM area uh, and develop skill development in that space uh, across the board, whether it's gender question or whether it's you know um, uh, accessibility of education, uh is going to be the basis for all of these things coming in. So that, that analog component that you talked about, I think it's uh, it's really critical and skill. Um, there is a lot of uptake for it as well. So there's a lot of appetite uh, uh, for STEM-related uh, education across. Um, so that also covers education. But I think there was another critical aspect that you talked about. Digital is not just uh, digitization, right? So uh, within TCS, we have this term called digital reimagination. So digital
0: reimagination. Reimagination. Okay, what is it?
2: Uh, it's got it's got kind of six components. The business process, and this is very sales. I mean, this is a business-to-business um, um, business conversation. So it probably had to be contextualized to uh, to this context. But essentially, uh, one aspect is business process, which is the process digitalization, right? You just take existing manual processes and digital. Know, take mobile a, take a paper form and convert it into a mobile form. So that is basic. That's basic. That that anyway needs to be there. But the other part that we talk about is the whole model, business model, as we talk in a B2B term, which is essentially find out new ways of doing something that has not been done at all, right? So you, apart from just cutting out the steps, which is what the the process digitization will happen, right? Will will ensure that you're cutting out some of the steps. Instead of going there, you're actually sending an SMS. That's just a... Uh, process thing, but if you can actually get into a model where people are able to make money out of it, or you know, be able to find out what else, so that's that's a great thing. The other bit around digital is also identifying uh, again. This is a B two B term. Customer segments. So digital is providing mechanism to find new customers. Mm-hmm. So if you come to a government to citizen conversation, you're actually looking at. You know, can you identify a demography which is which requires a special treatment or a different and, treatment?
0: And which may have been neglected so which far. Which may have
2: been neglected and which may not... Up, uh, so, for example, what uh, Dana was mentioning, you have some set of application services, etc. It might not apply to that... T- demography and typically this these kind of new demographies would be at the boundary of yeah. larger demographies right so you talk about educated versus uneducated but there are also going to be a small band there where they are partly educated but not fully educated or not. so uh, th- that i think is a key thing the last bit is around channels how do you reach out so uh, mechanism of reaching out uh, reaching out to the, in that bit is essentially is how do you uh, try and bring in digital and physical together so suddenly if you have a service which is fully digital, its uptake may or may not succeed. Uh, but if you can think about or reimagine the whole thing, in the way that, you know, you do partly digital and partly physical. So these are, this is experience that have come from banks, right? Banks tried to say suddenly that, you know, we won't need uh, brick and mortar locations. We'll do everything on the mobile, etc. It didn't go very far. Now most of them are actually reverting back to getting, because people come into the bank for asking certain questions, etc., so it makes sense. So if you can merge right. those two, physical and digital, so I think the digital reimagination aspect, which a lot of private sector companies are using, potentially has a lot of value. Um, and
0: final p- point?
2: Final point on the blockchain. Um, I think that's, there are two or three technologies that we have not touched upon today. Uh, I think blockchain is going to be a game changer if it gets where it gets. The other bit is the artificial intelligence, machine learning, yep. the dangers and the aspects which are coming there, and the last third, I think, large apart from cybersecurity, data privacy, etc., is the space of personalized medicine, genomics, that whole whole area, which is going to have a lot of impact on you know how different countries uh, handle different aspects. Developers are developing. So I think these are two or three things that would.
0: Thank you. Thank you very much uh, to all three of you also for setting out, I think, pathways to the future, because you've mentioned a number of things that are absolutely going to be the key challenges that we have to uh, tackle in the, in, the coming, uh, in the coming years. Uh, one thought I want to leave you with, uh, as we all go back to our desks. Uh, I've been reading a lot of of, uh, information about this, and one thing that really struck me was that in the future, 90% of all jobs will require digital skills. And I think one of the most uh, pathetic and poignant stories about lack of digital skills was really not about the young, but old people. don't know if you've seen I, Daniel Blake, Uh, the movie recently, uh, well, about two or three years ago, and it's a movie about an older man who doesn't have these digital skills, becomes unemployed, and the only way he can get back into the system is by using the computer, and he doesn't know at all how to do it. And he turns to people over and over again. Anyway, it has a sad ending. But for me, uh, what you've been saying is very, very true. Digital exclusion is the challenge, but when I look at the future, I have to say, I see a world that will be, I think, I hope... um, much better off than it is today because we will be empowering people and giving access to education and health and, uh, Nico, creating new jobs as well, I hope. So thank you indeed very much for being here. Our publication on digital will be covering all of these issues and more. If you have new ideas and you want to write for us, uh, please feel free to do so. Contact me or my wonderful colleague, uh, uh, Clotilde, who is really the mover and shaker at Friends of Europe when it comes to all things to do with development so thank you all very much, thank you to our panel and I hope to see you again very very soon thank you